Father, we ask that you would glorify yourself, your name, through us. That you would make much of yourself through broken and shattered vessels, jars of clay. That the living, abiding word of God may have its way in us. It would change us. That it would reflect the wonderful character of the richness of the grace that we contain because of faith in Jesus. God, give us the joy, we pray, of seeing our life change and transformed from one degree of glory to the other. That there is likeness to Jesus. There, there, is, there is growing conformity to the image of Christ that is showing up in our life. The, the stamp of God, the image of God is being pressed in deeper into our hearts and lives. Your character, your likeness, your passion, your zeal, your heart for the nations. God, may that echo in our own lives. And may we see the, the wonder of your word shaping us and the power of your word shaping the communities and peoples around us. God, we invite your presence today through your word, through your spirit, through the convicting work and the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit. May your presence be known today. May we experience it in a real and tangible way. And may we leave this place as those who are changed, changed by the word of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we've been singing those songs today, we've been singing about a reality that we can enjoy because of what Christ has accomplished for us through his death and resurrection. It wasn't in the experience of those who lived in the Old Covenant, in the, the Old Testament days, those who were living before the the work of Christ uh, on the cross is death and resurrection. But, but God has always intended from the very beginning to create for himself a worshiping community, to, to make his presence known, to, to allow his presence, the, the manifestation of his glory, the evidence of his presence among his people known to invite them in to something greater than just the day-to-day the -day kind of living, to invite them into fellowship with the very God who has created heaven and earth. In Exodus chapter 40, we see that the tabernacle has been built and the, the invitation has been given for the people of God to worship. And, and, and with the establishing of the tabernacle, and with the, the validation of the standard being met, that Moses and the people having met the expectation that God had set for every feature, every part of this tabernacle, God has inspected the work, he has found it chosen, he has found it precious, and then he comes. We find in verses 30 to 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. By the way, this is the same Moses 
that enjoyed the presence of God on the mountain. This is the same Moses that walked into the tent of meeting at the edge of the, of the camp of the people and, and, and talked with God as a man speaks with a friend. But, but the glory comes down in the tabernacle and Moses can't go in because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. His presence was there among his people in his tabernacle. This was the manifest presence of God that he invited the people to enjoy and and that David years later would would seek to continue to, to elevate and honor and cherish the glory of God by, by building a temple, a, a, a temple that wasn't just a, 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 a temporary dwelling place in a tent, but a, but a permanent dwelling place there in Jerusalem. His heart is expressed in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In verse 2, he says, The king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. The word of the Lord, in verse 4, came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in the tent for my dwelling. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This has always been the heart of God to build a worshiping community. He would do it not through Solomon. He would do it through Christ. He would establish his kingdom through Jesus the Messiah. He would establish a house, a temple, a place of worship through Christ and through the living stones that we're looking at last week and this week. It has been God's heart to build a worshiping community, to enjoy the presence of God and to shine the glory of God to the world around them. Solomon did build a house for God. We, we see this dedication of this temple in 2 Samuel or 2 Chronicles, excuse me, chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, this prayer of dedication, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. God invites you. He invites me. He invites us as people of faith to come and participate with him in worship, to be part of this master plan, to be those whom he's assembled as his dwelling place, as the temple of God, the glory of God that came down on the tabernacle, the glory of God that came down on the temple, the presence of God that was there can be and will be in you through his spirit if you come to him in faith. 
Are you a believing person today? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Have you come to the living stone? He desires for you to believe in him. Even now, there is no need to wait. Trust in God. Even now, confess your sins. Repent and turn from them. Ask that God would cleanse your heart and make you new and lead you into relationship with him and establish you as one of these living stones that we're going to look at this morning. A place of worship. A place of his glory. His dwelling place. The dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's what he seeks to establish in you. That's what he wants to do. And it will not be a place that is physical in nature. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2 says this. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Here it is. All these my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The presence of God would not dwell permanently in a tabernacle or permanently in a temple. But his presence will remain permanently with you as one who is a person of faith. He seeks to establish in his people worshipers, those who are humble, those who tremble at his name, those who come and bow before him as Lord and see that he is this living stone that we've been talking about. We are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. We, we started this journey last week. I think it's on page 1014 in your pew, pew, pew Bible that is there in front of you, if you don't have one of your own. The invitation last week was to come. Come. It was, it was a participle. Not just a one-time coming, but a, but a coming that is meant to come to remain. Come to stay. Come to abide this continual coming that we're called to do. It's drawing near to Christ in intimate, abiding, personal relationship. God's presence in the innermost parts of your life and the the intent to remain and to experience Him. We saw last week the significance of the living stone. Why is He referred to as the living stone? We saw that there are There are at least four reasons why Peter points to him as living stone. It's because he is God, that God alone is rock. God alone is refuge. God alone is deliverer. He is established. He is enduring. He is the one who will remain. We saw that he is Messiah. He is the one who is Savior and deliverer. He's the promised one of old who will bring salvation to his people. We saw that he is word, the, the very word of God. We made these connections in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 2. As we looked at the word living, we saw living hope, which points to Jesus. Jesus as the living Savior, the resurrected God, who is now seated at the right hand of God. He is that living hope. We made a connection then to verses 22 and 23. We saw the living word of God. That living word that is living and abiding that that God uses, this imperishable seed that that births you and brings you to new life. Then in chapter 2, where the 
Both connections are made together. We see the living stone, who is Jesus, and the living stone, who is the word at the end of verse 8. We'll get there towards the end of our message. The, the question is, what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? You can't be neutral about this question. To, to ignore Jesus is to dismiss and, over, and pass over the Savior who has come, the chief cornerstone, the, the one whom God has said is elect, the one whom God has said is precious. He has already put his stamp of approval on Jesus. What will you do with him? Will you come to him? Come in faith or will you reject him? We started by answering these two questions and we left the third open for this week. Our, our third question for last, from last week was, what happens to those who reject the stone? What happens to those who reject the stone? And I, I want to look at this together and maybe press in by asking a couple other questions, kind of, kind of leading up to the final one. Because we need to understand, first of all, what does it mean to reject this living stone? What are we talking about when we talk about rejection of this stone? So look with me, if you would, at chapter 2, verse 4. Let's see this together. This is significant for Peter. He's trying to draw this out for you. As you come to him, it says in verse 4, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, but, excuse me, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Verse 7 repeats this word. It says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. P Peter is clear in these verses. There is either acceptance or there is rejection. There is no middle ground. There are no other options that you have. There's no way you can be neutral about Jesus or this living stone. The word rejected is the word to regard as unworthy, to reject as not genuine. It uses the perfect tense here, which, which points to a past action with continuing results, kind of like the ripples in a pond. You, you throw a rock into the pond, and these, these ripples move outward. And, and the same is true of those who have rejected him. There is this ripple effect in their heart that continues to lead to continual rejection of God. And all that he stands for, all that he desires in life, all that he has to offer, there is rejection of him, and thus rejection of the benefits that come with believing and coming to, to this living stone. This imagery implies two building projects, one that is constructed by human builders, the, the stone which the builders rejected, meaning they're, they're fashioning for themselves their own uh, religious system, that they're fashioning for themselves that their own uh, temple and dwelling place, their own spiritual systems of, of worship. And they have looked at Jesus and they have examined him and found him to be wanting. But then the other building project, uh, the project that God is putting together, and he has declared that this living stone is chosen. This living stone is precious in his eyes. When men sent a, to, to build a building in the ancient world, the most important stone was the cornerstone. From this stone, every angle of the building would be measured. Every angle of the building would begin to fit together. And so, it was the plumb line for every direction. 
every angle from those that are laid next to it to those who are stacked on top of it. This cornerstone established the true dimension of the building. Every angle then had to be perfect. The idea here is that the leaders of Israel came to inspect Jesus as the cornerstone. They, they examined him. They, they measured him. They, they tried to fit him into their system and they found that he did not meet their standards. It was unthinkable that this living stone would be the cornerstone. This one who opposed their external religion. This one who redefined the expectation of the law. This one who abolished their system of merit. This one who extended grace to sinners and tax collectors. He did not comply. He did not fit their system. And so they rejected him. As we have said before, this was not a neutral decision. In rejecting what God had declared to be chosen and precious, they rejected God himself. They stumbled, it says, being disobedient to the word in verse 8, which means to strike against, to stumble, to fall. They struck against him and stumbled. They encountered him for themselves and they responded. Now, their response was to stumble over him. I appreciate the fact that they were not unfamiliar with Jesus. They were not unfamiliar with his message. But, but notice in, in verse 8, they stumbled over the word. And that's significant, I think, because they're not just stumbling over the personality of Jesus. They're stumbling over the word itself, that which is impartial, that which stands, that which lives and abides, that which, which never changes. A person is physical, limited to one spot, but, but the word is transcended. I like, I like how the apostle Paul puts it. He says, he says, I am bound, but the word of God is not bound. Praise the Lord that we, we have the word of God that is this impartial standard for us. And they, in hearing the word, tripped over this word of God. They did not accept him. They rejected him. Peter then begins to build through the rest of this passage other words that help to provide some definition, some clarity to what we're talking about. What is rejection after all? Well, we see another step in when he describes it in verse 7. He says this, actually backing up to verse 6, For it stands in the scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. They rejected him, but they also did not believe in him. They did not believe in him. Again, we see an active participle. We see their participation in not only rejecting him, but disbelieving in God. This was a willful decision on their part. They play an active role. They're not passive in this process. They have no faith. They are unbelieving. They saw his works. They heard his words. They observed his life. They examined his character. They observed his wisdom, marveled at his teaching, and were the recipients of his rebuke 
and they were those who enjoyed his compassion. As Jesus entered into their homes and and had meals with them, they were setting him up, but he still moved in. He still was accessible to them. The word of God was, was available to them too. Jesus did not cut them off. And Jesus, in responding to the leaders of the Jews, was willing to heal their children, to raise their dead kids to life. The ministry of Jesus to this crowd and yet they still did not believe they did not believe they had not a heart of faith there was no essence of saving faith in them verse 8 takes us another step for, forward in verse 8 it says a stone of stumbling a rock of offense they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do yes they rejected him Yes, they did not believe in him, but they also did not obey him. And I want you to understand that in 1 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 2 and throughout the rest of this little letter, these words are used interchangeably. Faith and obedience and acceptance. Those who, who come to him instead of those who reject him. It describes those who are people either of faith or those who are people who are on the outside. They were disobedient. Again, an active participle. It expresses the, the quality of their life. They had no obedience. In each of these words, you can't see them uh, unless you're looking at the Greek, but, but each of these words are compound words in the Greek. And you can see the correlation, the, the word that's prefixed to the beginning, the word ah, which is the word not. Not of faith, not of obedience. And immediately you can make the correlation. We need to be people of faith. We need to be people of obedience because if we're not, we're going to be on the outside. These terms are used synonymously throughout the scriptures. Interchangeably, again, throughout chapters 1 and chapter 2. The call is for you to obey. The call is for you to believe. The call is for you to come, to taste and to see that the Lord is good, to be a person of faith who can enjoy and participate in the tasting that the Lord is good. So we've seen this morning those who reject the living stone. We've seen what that means, but I want to turn our attention now to what or who are those who reject this living stone? We, we have come to understand what it means to reject, but who are we talking about? And it may hit a little close to home. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 says, The honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. In the three accounts that we get in the New Testament of, of Jesus using this little uh, quote from Psalm 118, we understand that the immediate audience aren't those who are hostile towards God, aren't those who are rebels, aren't those who have turned their back on him and want nothing to do with a religious system. Rather, they are the religious and devout elite. Those who you would expect from a human standpoint to have it all in terms of coming to the stone. Jesus makes it clear to the chief priests, to the elders of the people, to the Pharisees, the very 
last part of this week that he is coming into, the week before he is killed. He wants to set the record straight in in describing who they are through this parable of the tenants. The tenants who rejected the son, who cast him out, who stoned him and threw him away. It was to that crowd that Jesus says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It was to that group of individuals that Jesus applies this messianic passage. The most religious, the most devout, the most secure from a human standpoint are at the front of the line in rejecting Jesus. Jesus tells this parable to those who are the most passionate about the structure of the temple. He tells this parable to those who were the most zealous about the religious system, those who were the most careful about regulation and standard. No one cared more about worship from a standpoint of tradition than the Pharisees and scribes. They loved the stones of the temple, but they hated the living stone himself. And so, no one was more wrong about the true plan of God than the Pharisees. No one missed it more than those who should have known better. I wonder for us the danger of being so close, of having access to the Word and and, and sitting under the teaching of the Word of God and and, and even listening to podcasts and and reading the Bible and and seeking as much as you can to, to fill out in your life these religious duties and still to miss the builder the builder of this temple. How can we find ourselves doing the same thing as the Pharisees? We can be so preoccupied with the structure, with the systems, with tradition. We can love this building and even love these people that we fellowship with and hate the actual builder. Want nothing to do with him. How did these Pharisees reject the living stone? I just want to draw out briefly for us the, the four specific ways, and there are several others that we could look at, but, but to correlate it to uh, last week's message, I, I want you to see their, their rejection of this living stone was complete. They rejected him first as God. They rejected him as God. Luke chapter 5, verses 20 to 26, this is the, the, the parable at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry where he's pressed by the crowds and, and he's teaching in a house and all of a sudden the roof begins to, to break apart and, and a man is lowered in, this, this paralyzed man from his four friends. Jesus, in seeing him, says, man, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees' immediate response is found in verse 21. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus is like, exactly. Exactly. What's easier? What's easier to do? To, To forgive this man's sins or to say to him, rise up, take up your bed and walk. And with that, he gives the word to this man, take up your bed and walk. And the man stands up walks out of that place, holy and completely new, confirmation, Jesus is God. 
And yet, Jesus is dogged by these Pharisees from the beginning of his ministry to the very end. He confirms that he is God, and yet they reject him as God. Do not be like a Pharisee. Do not reject God himself, the living stone. I was trying to think, what is a direct correlation for us? What are some ways that we can reject God? And I, There are several ways that we can do this, but I want you to understand that as we saw last week and the week before, as we've been looking at in 1 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 2, we have been birthed by God into a spiritual community. We belong to one another. You belong to me. I belong to you. And, and this is the heart of Jesus. In John chapter 17, as he's praying to the Father, he says, I do not ask for these alone, but I ask for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one so the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus died to make us one. And yet, and I'll speak for myself, how often is it that we express the connection throughout the week of our bond with one another in belonging to one another? Actively pursuing the health of the whole. That's what we said belong means in our bow, build, bless, belong. Are we actively pursuing the health of the whole? Are you interested in this family that God has put you in relationship with? Not just on Sunday, but throughout the week. I think for myself that there are times when I reject him as the living stone, when I reject him as one who has brought me into family. Are you exercising and participating in that on a regular basis? Are you showing that God has birthed you and called you in to be part of this family? They also rejected him as Messiah. We, we can find that all over the New Testament, but John chapter 10 may give us some help. John 10, verse 24, the Jews gathered around and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them and said, I told you, you don't believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. So, how do they respond? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They did not believe. They rejected him as the living stone. They sought to destroy the one whom God the Father said was precious. How do we demonstrate apathy, indifference, rejection of this living stone, the Messiah? Well, I think one way we do that is recognizing that Messiah is Savior. He is the promised one who came to deliver. And we reject the message of Messiah and the commission that he's given to us to go and to teach the nations about the good news of Christ. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I think there are times where we reject him as the living stone. We reject him as Messiah, 
by quieting our lips, sealing our hearts away from the compassion of those who desperately need to know Jesus as their Savior. We are not about mission. We're apathetic towards the Messiah. They reject him as the word, John chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. There's so much that we could say, but focusing in on verse 37, say, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. You want nothing to do with my word. I am the living word. You want nothing to do with me. Jesus has called us, God has called us into relationship so that we can grow as a body. We can build one another up. We can be about discipleship. He says in Ephesians 4, 12 and 13 that he has equipped pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Here's the goal until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to the uh, to the to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We need each other to grow and to, and to develop in our understanding of the word and to grow in likeness of Jesus together. That is our goal. That's our mission. And when we, re- when we reject the living stone, when we reject the word of God, this strengthening priority that he's given to us as a church, we say that we reject him and him as living stone. Finally, they reject him as temple. John eleven, forty-five to fifty. This is right after Lazarus is raised from the dead, and the, the Jews are are coming together to figure out how to deal with Jesus. And they say in verse forty seven, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Meaning, they're going to take away the temple and they're going to destroy our national identity. It's better, they say, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to die for them as a nation. He came to die for us to let us enter in so that he is the temple not established with hands but made without hands by God drawing us in together into worship. That's what he desires for us to be those who worship him. A worshiping community personally and corporately. So when we reject that in our lives from day to day, and when we reject the worship that we are called to corporately from week to week, we reject him as temple and thus reject the living stone. I was thinking about this as I was walking around my community and praying for us as a church and praying for me personally. Pleading with God to help us be the kinds of people that shine the glory of God into the places where we work, the places where we study, the places where we shop, the places where we live. And and a thought occurred to me, what is it about my life that's compelling? What is it about my life that's different? Or am I just a dressed up 
version of my neighbor who thinks they are just as moral, just as good as I am, but I just maybe have a couple other things that are polished. Do I show the same affections as them in terms of how I prioritize my time? Do I show the same priorities for them in, in, the, in the activities that I'm involved in that may or may not be bad but are, but are, but are not along the, the priorities or the purposes that God has called me to? Is God just for Sunday or is the word of God on my lips and on my heart and in my conversations and in my actions towards the, the people who he's put in, in community with me? Do they see in me a difference in terms of priorities and purposes? Am I calling them to participate and come to the living stone because I have tasted that the Lord is good and they can see that they're missing something good in their life? So those who reject the living stone are the religious elite, but then we come to verse eight and, and we come to more hard truth. We see there are also those who are appointed by God to reject him. Notice this. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Wow, what does that mean? This word destined is the word tithemi. It's the word to put or place, to appoint, to cause, to make happen. It is the, the word to appoint or to to, uh, to, to, um, to cause. It's the same word that we see in verse six where it says, behold, I am laying in Zion. Same word. This divine activity of God in establishing this stone, Jesus himself, he is the one who laid this stone. He is the one also who appoints and destines these people who disobey the word. What are the implications? What is this talking about? Well, I think we get some clues as, as Peter tries to help provide some contrast between this group of people and those who believe, those who were chosen by God. No, notice this. I just want to walk through them quickly. First, this group is contrasted with those who were, uh, with the living stone that was chosen and precious. Verse four, chosen by God. Verse six, chosen cornerstone. Second, this group is contrasted by their rejection. Not those who come, but those who reject, in verse four. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. Third, there are those who are contrasted by their faith, in verse seven. The honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. I just wanted you to notice the, the interplay, the interchange of, of contrasts of communities. And so if we, if we know something to be true about the chosen, elect community of living stones, then we can begin to draw some conclusions about those who are not, those who reject. Fourth, they are contrasted by their obedience. Verse eight, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as opposed to what we see in chapter one, verse two. Those who were set apart by the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling in the blood of Jesus Christ. Those who, in verse 15, are to be holy as he is holy. 
Those in chapter 2, verse 8, as we just saw, they were disobedient to the word, contrasted by the obedience of those who were chosen by God. Fifth, we're going to see this more next week, they are contrasted by their identity. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That word, but, is a contrastive word. It wants you to recognize that something is different about this group in verse 9 that was not true about this, verse, this group in verse 8. So who, who is this group? This is a group that because of their rebellion are going to suffer condemnation from God. That's our final question. What happens to those who reject this living stone? What happens to those who reject this living stone? The answer is they are condemned. We see this in John chapter 3, 16 to 18. This is, this is a description of what's, what's happening here. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Just pause for a moment. <laughs> Can you hear Peter saying, come to the stone, taste that he is good. Come, enjoy the benefits of faith in him. In this moment, bow the knee, confess your sin, turn your heart to God, believe that he is the living stone and enjoy the benefits of eternal life and fellowship with him forever. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's God's heart. That's what God desires. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. As we've been walking through 1 Peter, we've seen this divine activity of God. It is God's Spirit who sanctifies. It's God's Spirit who calls out. We, we know as we walk through the Gospel of John, we know that it's the, the Spirit who convicts hearts. It's, a, it's the Spirit who regenerates and gives new life. It's the Spirit who awakens and opens and illuminates our eyes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Satan blinds the eyes of those who believe not. But when God shines through the darkness, he who says, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts. He's the one taking action, shining into our hearts to shine the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ into your hearts. Would you, in this moment, if you're not a person who is believing, would you in this moment bow the knee and believe in Jesus? Because if you do not, you are destined for condemnation. But you can believe. Maybe you'll be asked, so what can we do? How do we respond to such a difficult message? I would say, if there are those who you know who do not, who do not know Jesus, I, I would encourage you to carry this burden of prayer for them and ask that God would change their heart, would shine this light into their heart and open their eyes and that God would use you to plant the seed of the gospel in their heart. I love what Charles Spurgeon says, and I'll close with this. This was given to me a week ago. It just, <laughs> it's amazing. It says, spiritual desires are the shadows of coming blessings. What God intends to give us, he first sets us a longing for. 
Hence, the wonderful efficacy of prayer. Because prayer is the embodiment of a longing inspired of God because he intends to bestow the blessing. What, he, what that means is God... Remember, in our study in Romans chapter 8, it's the Spirit who groans for you with groanings too deep for words. It's the Spirit who informs your heart and draws you to want spiritual things. He places a spiritual burden in your life and then the Spirit lifts it to God in prayer as you're asking God to do this work. And the promise is that to Him who is able to do far more exceeding abundantly above all that you could ask or think, to, his, to Him be the glory in the church both now and forever, amen. Pray that God would do a work in those you love. But God has bound himself to prayer. And if we do not pray, you have not because you ask not. Would we be those who struggle with God in prayer over those lost souls of people around us and see, see God at work in rescuing hearts, drawing them to himself and making his name glorious through us. Let's pray. God, as we come to these final moments of our time together, we are blown away by the privilege of what the Old Testament saints only got to observe through a distance. But we, as those who participate in Christ through faith, get to enjoy intimately, personally, through your Holy Spirit and through faith. Oh God, may we not take that for granted. And may we carry the burden of Christ for lost souls all around us and see that truly your word is able to accomplish its work in the hearts of unbelievers. That we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So God, I pray, Give us hearts that are tender to those who are lost. Give us the energy to participate with you in this great, this great program of those who are ambassadors of Christ. May we be those who represent coming to the stone and not rejecting the stone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you go. 